I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. Coming up, we'll continue our series tackling the Colorado River's water crisis and efforts to keep the river's major reservoirs from drying up. Our guests are Aaron Citrin, Senior Policy Advisor with the Nature Conservancy's Colorado Chapter, and journalist Jerd Smith, who is the editor of Freshwater News. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Serious food allergies have been hard to treat, and they can be deadly. If someone who's allergic to peanuts or shellfish eats one small bite, it can lead to sudden swelling, rapid heartbeat, and difficulty breathing that quickly leads to death. Doctors prescribe an EpiPen for people like this to carry with them. An EpiPen's a way to quickly inject epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. It does save lives, but even better, most experts agree, would be curing someone of the food allergy. Now, researchers from the University of Chicago believe they're hot on the trail of a simple way to prevent severe food allergies. They announced their findings yesterday at the fall meeting of the American Chemical Society. The findings involve a lab mouse that's made to have severe peanut allergies. The researchers basically healed the mice by giving the mice a supplement that shifted their gut microbes away from the kind that damage their intestines to those that tend to heal the intestine. In other words, the researchers healed the mice of leaky gut, and this in turn healed the severe food allergies in the mice. Twenty years ago, most medical researchers scoffed at the idea that damage to the intestinal lining could increase the risk of problems such as food allergies. Better understanding of the microbes that flourish within our digestive tract has led more researchers to believe the health of the intestines can make a difference in many diseases. So how did all this help the mice with severe peanut allergies? The Chicago researchers used a nutritional compound known as butyrate. If you think butyrate sounds a little like butter, you are correct. The term comes from the Latin word for butter. Unfortunately, butyrate is not as delicious as butter. Researchers warned that butyrate smells like a cross between rancid butter and dog poop. The researchers found a way to disguise the smell and taste of butyrate and deliver it into the mouse digestive tract. There, they report the butyrate-fed gut microbes that improved the health of the intestines and basically healed their leaky gut. We'll follow this story to tell you more about how improving gut health has the potential to reduce severe food allergies. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Debating which COVID booster to get this fall? The results of a new study show longer-lasting antibody and cellular immune response in people who got a Johnson & Johnson booster instead of a Pfizer-BioNTech booster if they had initially gotten two doses of the Pfizer vaccine six months earlier. Researchers from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston led the study. Basically, they started with 70 people, all of whom had been double-boosted with Pfizer. Then half got another Pfizer booster, and the other half got J&J. Both boosters improved antibody levels and immune cell levels. A Pfizer booster resulted in a rapid rise in antibodies that were able to neutralize the current Omicron variant. 
In numeric terms, it rose to about 1,000 in week two, then dropped down to 148 after four months. In contrast, after a J&J booster, Omicron neutralizing antibodies peaked at 859 in week four and dropped to 400 after four months. This difference in antibody lifespan may be due to something intrinsic in Pfizer's drug, or it could be that a different formulation stimulates the immune system in a new way, boosting antibody formation. Scientists don't know. This result could be relevant to the new Moderna booster, which targets both the original version of the coronavirus and the first Omicron variant, BA1, which emerged in late 2021. Clinical trials have shown that this combination booster generates a stronger immune response against BA1 and other versions of Omicron now in circulation than the original vaccine. The UK approved the Moderna booster last week, but here in the US, the Food and Drug Administration asked Moderna and Pfizer to use more recent versions of Omicron, BA4 and BA5, rather than BA1. This study was published last week in JAMA Network Open. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that report. You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Today we'll continue with our series on the water crisis facing the Colorado River Basin and the 40 million residents and growers who rely on the river for water and electricity. Last month we discussed how persistent drought, climate change, and overuse have caused the water levels of the Colorado River's two major storage reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, to plunge to historic lows. The crisis came to a head in mid-June. That's when the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation ordered the seven states that depend on the Colorado River to agree on a plan to drastically cut their water consumption from the Colorado River. They were given only 60 days to deliver, or the Bureau would force major cuts upon them. Well, that deadline came last week on August 15th, and it passed without the states delivering an agreement. And yet the federal government really didn't deliver on its threats or action plan, at least not in any measurable way. So what next? And what can be done to ensure that the river, particularly its major reservoirs, don't run dry and threaten the livelihoods of millions of people, including tribal communities and many wildlife species? Our two guests today have worked on these critical water issues for many years. They're both joining us via phone while attending a statewide water conference in Steamboat Springs. Aaron Citrin, is a lawyer, and he's Senior Policy Advisor for the Nature Conservancy's Colorado Chapter. Aaron, welcome, and thanks for coming on the show. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And Jared Smith is a journalist and editor of Freshwater News. That's an online publication of Water Education Colorado. Jared, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I wanted to start, dive in, so to speak, with um, Jared. Could you, in a nutshell, tell us what did the Bureau of Reclamation order back in mid-June 
specifically, and then what action happened or didn't happen come deadline day last week? Sure. Um, so in June, the Bureau of Reclamation, which operates, you know, this giant plumbing system that we call the Colorado River, um, said conditions are deteriorating so rapidly that we want the seven states and the tribal communities, as well as Mexico, all of whom are major users of the river, to reduce water use by 2 million to 4 million acre feet. And that is, that's big time water. Um, Colorado itself uses, depending on the year, anywhere from 3 to 4 million acre feet. Um, and the river has been generating anywhere only roughly 11 to 13 million acre feet. So that was a big ask. Well, and just for those who um, may not know the what an acre feet is, isn't it roughly a football field filled to one foot deep or roughly exactly. the amount that a family of four on average uses in a year? That's 326,000 gallons, I think. Exactly, exactly. So um, in response to that order, the... The river has seven states, the upper basin states, which is Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico. Um, they submitted um, basically a five-point plan, um, very fairly high level, about what they thought they would be willing to do in order to avert this crisis. They submitted that um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the lower basin states who use... Um, roughly 10 million acre feet of water a year out of the river um, have yet to, to submit a formal plan to the Bureau. And the Bureau is right now basically giving them um, more time to come up with an agreement. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, the Yeah. Yeah, so to both of you, let me start with you, Erin Citrin of the Nature Conservancy. Was it enough and first, were you surprised by what the Bureau of Reclamation did say come last week or didn't? Well, I wasn't particularly surprised. Um, this was, as as Jordan mentioned, a really substantial quantity of water um, that the states were asked to come up with in a relatively short period of time. Um that said, the latest forecast, the, the, the state of the river itself, wasn't a particularly big surprise. The West has been grappling with the worst mega drought in about 1,200 years, and mm -hmm. scientists and policymakers have been sounding the basin's alarm for quite a while. Um, so uh, you know, this, was, this was a lot uh, on a short timeline. Uh, the Bureau did uh, officially implement uh, Tier 2 shortages, which had been previously negotiated in the lower basins. And just to interject, I don't want to get too Not jargony for listeners, but sort of in a nutshell, Tier 2 is what, the next level of action plans? Yes, I'm sorry. So they will be implementing some cutbacks in the lower basin. Um, and as, as kind of part of the, well, tangential, but I think related to the request, um, included in the recent Inflation Reduction Act, um, the, the big congressional um, legislation that passed just the, in the last couple of weeks, uh, $4 billion uh, has been made available um, for Western water conservation purposes. Um, and that will also be used to allow the restart of a system conservation program in the upper basin that will start, again, paying ranchers and farmers to use less water 
um, to begin once again contributing to these issues. So while the Bureau's response was somewhat limited, some of the uh, other investments and changes outside of that process have been really substantial. Oh, interesting point. And so, Jared, what about you? Were you surprised? Too little? Too much? Probably not too much? Too late? What? <laughs> the And just to make sure I understood, are you saying the water or the, the cash? Aaron, that's for you. The the $4 billion was the cash. Uh, I, I I don't believe there will be that. We're not going to find 2 to 4 million acre feet of water, um, but $4 billion to pay for conservation programs, efficiencies, and infrastructure is, uh, is significant and should at least um, set us on the right path while the lower basin, as you mentioned, continues their discussions about how and to what degree they might be able to contribute wet water to the equation. So, Jared Smith, yeah, what was your initial reaction and, and now, now that you're following it super closely? Sure. sure. Um, so, I, I agree with Aaron. $4 billion is significant. It's a huge amount of money and more than the Bureau, I believe, has ever had before to address these kinds of issues. Um, and because agricultural water users use 80% of the river supplies, um, the biggest bang for the buck is going to be figuring out how to help them use less water. And so in the immediate, the fastest way to do that is just to pay them to stop growing and to leave that water in reservoirs. Um, and this is, you know, prior to this, states have never had that kind of cash. Um, so I think it's, um, I think it's a hopeful step. Um, and the biggest water user on the river, the Imperial Irrigation District in California, they control something like 3 million acre feet, just said, a couple of days ago, look, we're willing to talk. We're willing to figure out how to get this done. Um, and it has, it is a very powerful water district and has been, um, very, uh, quick to assert its rights. And all, but in, in fairness to the district has also been, um, involved in some of the most innovative, um, following programs. Those are the programs where farmers are, st- are paid to stop growing. They have been big players in some of the most innovative small programs that we've done. This $4 billion will give us an opportunity to see what really big programs can do. Interesting. And since uh, you brought up ag being by far the biggest user at about 80% of consumption from the Colorado mm-hmm. River, Amy, just jump in to ask you within that, and including, I guess, what, what could come from the Investment Reduction Act, where might be low-hanging fruit? Because on, on the one hand, it sounds, oh, great, fallow fields, don't grow, give those water rights or lease them to cities. But what does that mean also economically and culturally? Sure. So um, the way these programs have worked in the past, again, on a small scale, or this is huge scale, mm-hmm. but they do pay farmers to stop growing. Um, and that water can be left in reservoirs. Um, the trick is to A, um, pay farmers enough to compensate them for their, that loss of revenue. But even trickier is to make sure that the agricultural communities who rely on that industry are not crippled. Um, so that's a very tricky part of all this. Really important point that I think is lost in some of the environmental discussions. Yes. Yeah. And so they're working on it. And Colorado has done 
um, some very interesting lands, they call them landscape level studies, looking at evaluating the health of a crop that has been deprived of water for two or three years, say high altitude alfalfa. And what they have just determined in the last couple of years, they've looked at, so they don't just look at is the field going dry, and when we bring it back, what happens? They look at the actual nutritional content of the alfalfa to really fully understand what the impact of these fouling programs might be. Hmm, so not just the economic impact and the water consumptive aspects, but the nutritional exactly. content. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So we're on the cusp of some very, very interesting, I think, probably um, exciting developments on the river, despite the absolute critical nature of this, this these shortages that we're facing. There are some very interesting things happening. And Aaron Citrin of Nature Conservancy, given you're working on a lot of this stuff within the context of Nature Conservancy, could you point to any other or related examples where there are some proactive things happening already, particularly within the ag sector? Sure. Uh, Jared makes some really good points. And, and as she called out, the Nature Conservancy and other partners are working with a group of ranchers in the upper Colorado River um, to evaluate how these conservation programs could work um, without permanent dry up. But are there ways to um, to dry up a portion of a field or to uh, fallow the field for a part of the year so that some production remains to optimize for economics and pr- productivity um, to maintain soil health and, and uh, protein content, as she mentioned. Uh, we're also working with, um, with ranchers on the Yampa River, right down the road here from Steamboat Springs, um, to help them update their, their water delivery infrastructure uh, so that they can more flexibly manage water in times of shortage while also benefiting river flows for fish and recreation. You know, while this system is, in many ways, uh, a large uh, plumbing infrastructure, as Jerd mentioned, um, mm-hmm. it's important to remember that, uh, you know, it's also uh, nature and the environment are not just luxuries that can be sacrificed in the name of this crisis. And there's yes. opportunities for co-benefits as we improve the efficiency of infrastructure and focus on agricultural conservation. Uh, can we make sure that that water uh, on its way down to those reservoirs can benefit um, flows for fish and recreation? Um so, yes, there's a lot that agriculture can do, and they really have been particularly innovative throughout the basin in a number of ways. Um, they've adapted many times over the years, and I'm sure they will again. Um, but there's also an important role for other sectors um, that while agriculture uses the most water, uh, really the growth is in the municipal and industrial sectors, and they need to contribute as well. Um, one example that I want to mention just here in Colorado last year, we passed some legislation um, that will create a new incentive program to start paying people uh, to remove their irrigated turf grass. About 50% of water use in cities is for outdoor irrigation, lawns and parks. And Wow, 50%, so that's not insignificant. <laughs> no, it's not insignificant. And, and a lot of the irrigated uh, curb strips and the you know the irrigated lawn around your parking lot at the Walmart um, is arguably not as as necessary or beneficial. So trying to find ways to change the paradigm, take that out, and not grow grass in those areas. Um, and cities like Las Vegas have pioneered that, and it looks like the city of Aurora here 
is considering changes in their future land use codes to start phasing out that kind of water use. So it's good to see and important that it's not just agriculture that's going to be contributing, but but all sectors are going to be coming to the table in the future. And then briefly, and then we're going to take a little break, but um, and then also, Aaron Citroen, within the municipal sector, this legislation passed last year applies to residential areas as well as commercial and city-owned, right? So we yeah, can all think about our own um, landscaping. It really is a, is a Kickstarter, and a, let's just say it starts the process in Colorado. It, it sets aside a little bit of funding for water providers, for cities to develop their own programs um, to replace that turf grass with uh, lower water use um, um, options. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, where we've kind of embraced this as Aeroscape, uh, this low water use um, uh uh, dynamic. Um, so this is a first step. But yes, it would apply broadly uh, within water providers uh, districts and yet to be seen what those programs will really look like in practice. Interesting. Um, for those who are joining us a little late, you're listening to KGNU in Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, and I'm host Susan Moran. Joining me, we're discussing the current Colorado River water crisis and potential and actual solutions with guest Aaron Citron, Senior Policy Advisor with the Nature Conservancy's Colorado Chapter, and journalist Jaron Smith, editor of Freshwater News. Jared, I want to turn to you. I know neither you nor Aaron nor most people have actually been at the table where these representatives from states have been discussing. We had a guest a few weeks ago, Jennifer Gimbel of the Colorado Water Center, who said, you know, especially the upper Basin states, they're kind of a model for collaboration, sound a little kumbayaish, and I'm just imagining, what could it be but a food fight? Not just like within the upper basin states, but among upper and lower. What, kind of, what, what is the tone? You know, without getting too wonky or too detailed about who's sitting where, but also um, the role of tribes at the table or not at the table this time. Jared Smith. Right, right. So, you know, again, they have been these these talks have been very uh, behind closed doors. Very everyone's being very tight lipped in part because they don't want to settle their differences in public. But um, anyway, so it's a little hard to tell. Um, but we talked to Freshwater News. We talked to a number of people who were not directly at the table, but who have been at the table before um, when major Colorado River negotiations have been going on. Um, and within the upper basin, I think there is a modicum of, there is cooperation in the upper basin. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it has been, you know, for one thing, Colorado, because it is the largest water user in these, this region, it has taken a leading role in trying to figure out ways to reduce use, not as quickly as a lot of people would like to see, um, and many of the, and also the, the other states in this region, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico, they don't have the resources that Colorado has. They don't have the cash to devote to the studies and mm-hmm. to the experiments and to the research that has to go into um, managing these supplies. So I think um, to the extent that they were able to come up, at least agree on a five-point plan that they could get over to the Bureau of Reclamation ahead of that deadline, they did pretty well. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was know, pretty rough. I think it was two pages, but at least it was something, right? It was something, exactly. And it was high level. Um, but I also think um, they were also, I sense there's probably a small amount of relief that the Bureau didn't come out and say, 
by the way, we know you guys have never used your full allocation of water, uh, but just as an act of good faith, how about cutting back on your own use? The Bureau has not asked them to do that yet. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been the tone of the conversations would have been much different if the Bureau had demanded that the upper basin cut water use as an act of good faith as the lower basin, these giant consumers of water, try to find a way to do the same thing. I see. Just widen the rift and probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be as effective. Um, just time for one more question I want to pose to each of you. So are you hopeful or not and how that these upper and lower basin states, along with the tribes, will come up with a solution that's not just a whack-a-mole sort of Band-Aid approach, but will actually, in the long term, make for more sustainable use of what's left of the river. Uh, Jared Smith, how about you first? I do think they will come up with a solution. I don't think, and Aaron, I'll be curious to see what you think, but I don't think anybody is going to let these 40 million people, these thousands of acres of irrigated lands, these communities, they're not going to let them go dry. But I think, um, you know, the silver lining to this crisis is that changes that many people have been calling for for decades are, if they're not going to get, they're not going to get done overnight, but they're going to be put into place. California faced the same issue back in 02 when the feds ordered them. They had always overused their Colorado River water supplies, always, always, always. And they, the feds came in after years of negotiating and said, enough talk, mm-hmm. do it. And they, Los Angeles got it done. Um, and it wasn't easy, but they now use much less water. They are living within their legal means on the river. Nobody thought they could do it, and they got it done. So I think there are some there is some hope in that situation. And the folks in L.A. who've been through this before said, we will get it done. There are going to be a couple of lawsuits. People are not going to be happy, <laughs> and we're going to have to change the way we use ag water. Thanks. Um, just a few seconds. And Aaron Citrin, how about you? Hopeful? Not? I'm optimistic. You know, as much as the Colorado River Compact and prior appropriation, Western water rights get a bad rap, it's extraordinarily flexible. And the Western U.S. is kind of a story of adaptation. But as you mentioned, a really a new paradigm for the river is going to be necessary, and it's going to have to better incorporate um, tribal communities, as you referenced, and the ecological health of the river as well. Um, We've got another deadline coming up in 2026 uh, to set up a new set of interim management guidelines, and I think we'll find a way. Uh, We always have before, and and I think we'll do it again. Well, thank you, Aaron Citrin, so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And thanks so much, Jared Smith. Thank you. That was Aaron Citrin, Senior Policy Advisor at the Nature Conservancy's Colorado Chapter, and Jared Smith, Editor of Freshwater News. That's an online publication of Water Education Colorado. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Headline contributions by Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ramana Vieira. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you could subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.